Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 33 this morning. Matthew 5, 33, we'll go all the way to verse 37 this morning. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. There was a, a book written uh, in the late 90s, and then later a movie came out. Both were called Catch Me If You Can. I'm sure you've probably seen the movie. Maybe you've read the book. And it, 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 talks, it tells a, a true story of a teenage con man. His name was Frank Abagnale Jr. And he, he quickly found out that as a, as a 16-year-old runaway in New York City, it was really difficult to find a job that would actually pay any amount of money, enough money to live on. So what did he decide to do? He decided to forge his driver's license to make himself appear 10 years older. Just fudge the numbers a little bit. And even still, as a 26-year-old now in New York City, it was still pretty difficult to get enough money flowing in to live. He, so he found that if you talk to the right person at the bank and you use some charm and charisma, they would cash a check for you, regardless of if there were funds to back up that check. They would just trust your word. And so he started with a $60 check, one $60 check. Then it was $100. And then on and on, he started cashing more checks of more value. But then he discovered something really interesting. If you impersonate a pilot, they'll trust you even more. And so he managed to get his hands on a pilot's uniform, and he, sure enough, he found that they trusted him implicitly, and they would cash checks of more value. Well, then impersonating pilots led to flying on planes. <laughs> then ultimately, impersonating uh, pilots flying on planes then led to him impersonating lawyers, and, and a doctor, and then a professor. All the while, cashing checks that were worth more and more and more and more money. He eventually got caught in France and sentenced to prison after having cashed over $2.5 million in fraudulent checks. He flew more than a million miles for free in over 250 aircrafts to an estimated 26 countries while having no less than eight personalities that he was taking on. All between the ages of 16 and 21. Well, think about that for just a second. A teenager conning people, presenting himself as something that he really wasn't. There was a day when your word meant everything. You needed nothing more no more convincing was required. No more proof that you would do what you said you would do than simply giving someone your name. That was all you needed. The phrase gentleman's agreement was simply just a handshake. And all that was needed was that handshake that was meant to ratify that, that covenant, so to speak. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to talk about everyone's favorite topic. The taking of oaths. I knew when we put it on that sign out there, that would drive everyone in. Everybody's probably driving by going, oaths, man, 
I've always wanted to hear somebody preach on the taking of oaths. I'm definitely coming this Sunday. I know it's everyone's favorite topic. But in all seriousness, what may appear on the surface to be a minor issue, we may think, well, what does that have to do with me? Jesus seems to take very seriously. So let's look at what Jesus says in our text this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Chapter 5 of, of Matthew, and, and really the entire Sermon on the Mount, can feel like uh, Jesus is just seemingly going through a bunch of different topics and just covering random topics time after time after time. And so every time you come in here, we're talking about something completely different than the week before. Last week we talked about divorce, weeks before that we talked about lust, this week now the taking of oaths, it seems like these don't have any connection to one another. And that's true to some extent. He's talking about different things each week. But let's take a second just to remind ourselves of why we're talking about this in the first place. You remember the entire book of Matthew is primarily concerned with God building His kingdom on earth. That's the primary concern of the entire book of Matthew, that God is building His kingdom on earth. And He builds His kingdom in two ways, at least in this book. He builds His kingdom two ways. The first, he brings his king into the world. He introduces the world to his king. And this king is going to institute his reign over the earth. We're introduced to this king in the first chapter of Matthew. Because we're told that Jesus is of the line of David. You remember that long genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew. It's, it's there to introduce us to God's king. Through whom he's going to introduce his kingdom. So we're told that not only is he king, is he of the line of David, but we're also told that he is of God. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So we know that because he is of the line of David, because he is of God, he is uniquely suited to institute God's reign. So God builds his kingdom through his king, Jesus, introducing him to the world. But then second, God is building his, king, his kingdom by gathering a people who come under his rule. That's the second thing we see him doing. He's building his kingdom by, by gathering a people that are coming under his rule. So we see in, in chapter 4, verse 17, that Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as I said back then, here, here he comes bringing God's reign to his people. And he's telling the people how they can come under his rule. Well, how do we come under your rule? Well, I'll tell you. You need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is the way you enter into his rule. You come under his rule. Well, then we get into the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in chapter 5. And Jesus begins with that long list of beatitudes. And in this context of introducing this kingdom to the world... These Beatitudes 
function as a character profile of the people that come under his saving reign. This is what that person looks like. What does he say? He says they're poor in spirit. Meaning they understand that they have no right to be here outside of him opening the gates and bringing them in. They have absolutely no right of their own to be there. They're poor in spirit and he welcomes them in. They mourn over their sin and the sin in the world around them. They're brought to grief by sin. They're broken hearted by it. They're meek. And so on. The list goes on. He's filling out this character profile. But now, having laid out the character profile of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, well, then you have to ask, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what law do you live by? Will you live by the law that would govern the kingdom of heaven? Right? So let's wrap our minds around this for just a second. Jesus goes through this chapter and six times he says, You have heard it said in the days of old, but I say to you. Six times he says that as he goes through this chapter. Invariably, the you have heard it said part is referencing some sort of law or teaching in the Old Testament. That was common in that day. So in some cases, it looks like what Jesus is doing with that Old Testament law is that he's just throwing it out completely and saying, forget all of that, forget everything that you learned in the past, now I'm giving you a new law. And he says that by, but I say to you, do this instead. But that's obviously not what he's doing. That's not his intent. The Old Testament law is still God's law. It's still a law instituted by God, but it's a law that's intended to govern sinful humanity. That's why, we, even, when Jesus, even though Jesus has already come, Paul tells us in the, Old, in the New Testament that the Old Testament is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. The Old Testament law is still valid in some sense because when we look at it, it's meant to govern sinful humanity. And I don't know about you, but I know about me. And I'm still sinful. So when I look back at the Old Testament, it still very much informs me of who I am and it tells me of who I should be. It's the requirements for how sinful humanity builds a relationship with a holy God and comes to worship Him. But what Jesus is doing now in the New Testament is laying out a law, not that simply governs sinful humanity, but he's laying out the law of the kingdom of heaven that explains how people are to operate that have fully come under God's rule and his reign. What does that look like? So last week we saw that Jesus just outlaws divorce completely. He just outlaws it completely. And later in the book of Matthew, we read last week where he says, Moses gave you permission to divorce. Why? Because of your hard hearts. There was permission granted within the Old Testament law simply because you're sinful. There are these concessions that are made because of sinful humanity. In other words, Moses was giving you the law of God in a way that would allow sinful humans to still worship a holy God. But now, 
Jesus is giving us the law of the kingdom of heaven. And it's the law of the glory of God unfurled. What does it look like to completely come under his rule and his reign? And what I hope you're beginning to see is that it causes even more conviction in our lives. It looks like he's turning up the volume a little bit more. Telling you a little bit more about the holiness of God. Showing you what it really means to fall under his rule and his reign. Causes us more conviction because we're still sinful people. It brings to light those sinful dark corners of our heart. But the difference in this law is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're led now to confess our sins and we can faithfully submit to God's kingdom and all that it requires. Truthfully, the Old Testament law, if it's rightly understood, is pointing this direction anyway and saying Jesus is going to come and write the law on your hearts and set the record straight. Now with that context in mind, Jesus is is giving an example here. And he's going example after example in chapter 5. And he's telling us how the kingdom of God is governed more stringently than the Old Testament law is even capable of governing. So each week, he takes a little bit different topic every time, giving us examples of how it's different yet related to the law of Moses. And we're seeing that Jesus is the only one capable of delivering this law to us. With that said, we turn to Jesus' words here in our text. And he's teaching on oaths. And there's at least three things that I want to point out that he says here. The first is that God takes vows made in his name very seriously. God takes vows made in his name very seriously. Look at verse 33 there. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Jesus is not so much quoting a particular law. He's not going back into the Old Testament quoting something verbatim, but he's taking the general teaching of the law and giving that to us. Verses like Leviticus 19.12, you should see that on the screen behind me. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Or how about Psalm 50, verse 14? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Then one more in Deuteronomy 23, 21-23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin." You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So the first thing that you can see in these citations as we go through the Old Testament law is that not to make a a, a vow, not not to make a promise to the Lord is no sin. You see that there in the passage we just read. But to take an oath to the Lord, to promise something to God and then not fulfill it is grievous. Now, the question is, why is it so serious? Well, he he tells us in this last citation, he says, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God. 
You have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God. What you're doing is that in that vow, you were making a covenant to the Lord. That's what happened. You're making a covenant to the Lord. And we see time and time again in the, in the Old Testament where God tells the children of Israel that He is faithful to the covenant He makes with His people. Psalm 33, 4 tells it this way. He says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. The word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. In other words... He's true to His Word, and He's true to what He promises. And if He makes a covenant, or He makes a vow, He fulfills it. But the catch is, what He's telling the children of Israel, if you make a vow to Me, you also must fulfill it. Leviticus 19.2, He says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. As God acts, so He expects His people to act. You understand that? As God acts, so He expects His people to act. So if you make a vow to the Lord, He says you shall not delay in fulfilling it. And He's careful to make clear that if you don't vow to the Lord, that's not sin. But if, you, if, if that vow comes across the lips of His people, He will require it of them. In other words, there's no pulling the wool over the eyes of the Lord. There's no telling him that you're going to do something, I cross my heart and hope to die, so that maybe he'll believe you and he'll buy into what you're doing. Okay, you made a vow, I'll hold you to that, I'll deliver on my end of the promises, and then you'd come up short on your end. He says they're called by his name. And he takes vows made in his name and to his name very seriously. This is the common teaching that's in accordance with the Old Testament. This is what people are used to hearing about vows, even up until Jesus' day. God takes vows made in His name very seriously. And if you're His people, then you're making vows in His name. But the second thing we see that is that Jesus says here is, every oath is implicitly in God's name. Every oath. Oath or vow is implicitly in God's name. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Since it was a sin to make to make oaths in God's name and not deliver on the promise. There were some people that had taken up this habit of swearing an oath by other items or objects. As you can imagine, uh, we're sinful and we'll come up with all kinds of loopholes. We don't need an excuse. We, we will come up with all kinds of loopholes. And they did in Jesus' day, just like you and I do today. But the loopholes that they came up with, well, if it's a sin to swear something, that's, swear, swear to God that something is going to happen and then not fulfill it, well, then what I'll do is I'll swear to other things. You know, because you never know. Something might happen. Something might come up. Somebody might get sick and I might not be able to deliver on that promise. The last thing I want to do, it's fine if I have to go to my friend and tell him, look, I'm sorry I couldn't fulfill my end of the deal. The last thing I would want to have to do is go sacrifice a you know, sheep and do the whole, that whole thing. I don't want to have to deal with it. 
So honestly, why don't I just swear by something lesser? And Jesus mentions some of those ones that they do here in this text. He says, don't swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your own head, which probably means your own life. These were much better substitutes because none of them would actually bind you so that if you didn't fulfill your word, you wouldn't be held responsible for some sort of sin. Well, I I swore by earth, so... No harm, no foul, right? We do a very similar thing today. Even in a a growingly, increasingly atheistic culture, saying, I swear to God, is still pretty stark. It's still pretty serious when somebody says that. it's, it's, It's strong language. So we use substitutes. Our mother's grave has become... A, a common substitute for things like that. I swear on my mother's grave. And that's, that's still really serious, but it backs off that. It's particularly serious because you still lie. But, but it's a little bit less, less profane. I said just a minute ago, I cross my heart and hope to die. And then if you really want to add some serious to it, you know what you do? Stick a needle in my eye, Right? That tells you exactly how serious. All of these words that we use in swearing are meant to be collateral that supports the word that I've just given you. You make a statement and the person may not believe you and you want to convey how serious you are so you put collateral up next to it and your mother's grave becomes the collateral. Well, he wouldn't swear on his mother's grave. But Jesus commands here, Don't take an oath at all. He strikes it out completely. Do not take an oath at all. And this command, believe it or not, actually stirs quite a bit of controversy. And you'll see why in just a minute. Because we're not quite sure what to do with Jesus' words here. Well, don't take an oath at all. Well, we also have to consider Deuteronomy 6.13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. It's an open invitation. Swear by my name. You're my people. You serve me. Therefore, swear by my name. It's an open invitation. So that presents us with at least a little bit of a challenge here, regardless of what you think Jesus is doing. He's pretty clear in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 17, that that he's not just throwing out the Old Testament law. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's not throwing out the Old Testament. It doesn't fall like a stack of cards. He's not discarding anything that's written in the Old Testament. So he's certainly not throwing out Deuteronomy 6.13. So what is Jesus doing here? Is Jesus saying, hey, just ignore everything that's said there? Another reason this causes some controversy is because the Apostle Paul actually takes a vow several times in Scripture, in the New Testament. So it's obvious he didn't understand Jesus' words to mean exactly that. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, he says, But I call God to witness against me. Romans 1.9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. Or how about in Acts 18.18, when it says, At Cancrea, Paul had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. So Paul is... Going about just making vows. 
Are we to conclude that Paul sinned here by contradicting the words of Jesus, disobeying a law that Jesus had put forward? Now, you might scoff at that notion. But what do you do when a bailiff puts a Bible in front of you and says, place your hand on the Bible? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God? What do you do? Do you abstain on religious grounds because you say, hey, uh, the Lord has commanded here. You'd be right there with the Jehovah's Witness that don't take vows on the Bible. I know most of you are probably thinking, put me down for whatever the opposite of the JWs are doing, right? Though I'm not quite sure why, but just I think it's safe. And that's not to mention, are we able to stand at an, at an altar before the, uh, uh, a preacher and a congregation and make a marriage vow? Are we able to say, yes, I do, I promise to do this and I promise to do that? Should we not just come out there and say, do you want to marry her? Yes. All right, let your yes be yes and your no be no and walk out. Well, I don't think Jesus is prohibiting you from being sworn in in a testimony before a jury, nor do I think he's prohibiting you from taking a vow to your bride or your husband um, in front of a congregation. I want you to look closely at what he's condemning here. He condemns oaths by heaven, by earth, Jerusalem, by your own head. And then look at the reasoning that he gives for each of these. He says, heaven is the throne of God. Earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. And your head is God's because you can't even determine your own hair color. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I can, I can, I can, determine, <laughs> I can determine my own hair color if I really want to. <laughs> the presumption in Jesus' day is that someone could make a vow, could swear, they could make a promise by anything so long as it wasn't God Himself. And somehow that person wouldn't be morally bound to it. They wouldn't be tied to it anyway. If He broke it, it wouldn't be sin. And Jesus' point here is that there is no alternative that you can swear by that God doesn't also own Do you understand how the logic breaks down here? You say, well, I I swear, I've sworn by heaven. Instead of saying, saying, I swear to God, but do you realize that you haven't changed anything? That's his throne. I swear by my own life. Wait, God owns your life and determines whether you live or whether you die. See, he's condemning people that are trying to morally evade having to be true to their word. They're trying to slip around the side and not actually have to be true to what they told somebody they would do or the person that they're presenting before this other person, the person that they're looking at. Putting forth a fake person. It doesn't matter what you swear to. All of the vows are implicitly in God's name. If you represent the kingdom of heaven as one of its citizens, then you naturally represent its king. Therefore, all of the vows that you make, if he truly does own everything, then all of the vows you make are implicitly in his name. Jesus confirms this way of understanding in Matthew 23, verse 16 when he issues some woes to the Pharisees, and one of them goes like this. Woe to you blind guides, 
who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. It doesn't matter what you swear by. If you're his people, every word you say is representative of him. You may place your hand on a Bible for the comfort of a jury watching you, thinking to themselves, well, he has put his hand on a Bible and he has sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and he is under threat of perjury if he lies. But according to Jesus, it is the God that Bible testifies to that binds you to your oath. You may say, I promise to love you from this day forward until death do us part. But it isn't the congregation that holds you to that vow. It isn't the preacher that's asking you to to make that vow that holds you to that oath. It isn't anybody in the congregation or anybody outside the congregation. It isn't even your spouse that holds you to that vow. It's the promise to God himself that you made in his name. And as we've already seen, God takes oaths made in his name very seriously. Last we see That your word represents the God you serve. Your word represents the God you serve. Look at verse 37. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. If you're reading the NASB, you'll see that it says, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Yes, yes, or no, no. And that's actually what Jesus says here. Let, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Now, why does he say it that way? Because the impetus behind t- swearing towards some object is that you bind yourself in front of that person that you're swearing to cross my heart and hope to die. In other words, if I don't do what I'm telling you I will do, I'll die. That's, that's implicitly what that means. The question that that the citizens of God's kingdom need to ask is what actually binds me to my word? Jesus is driving home the point with that double yes, yes, yes. He's driving home the point that from you, a simple yes or a no should be all that you need to bind you. If somebody needs something a little bit more, give them a second yes. In other words... Your word is that strong that a simple yes should be all that is required to bind you to your word. Now, what keeps you true to your word? For the citizen of the kingdom of heaven, yes or no, binds you sufficiently to what you have said because you recognize that everything is implicitly a vow to God. Everything that you say is implicitly a vow to God. Then what does he say? 
anything more than this comes from evil. Now, it could be comes from evil or it could be comes from the evil one. His point is that to think that your word requires some other authority to bind you and that, that you aren't bound simply by your word, yes or no, comes from evil. If you're looking for some way to morally evade the question, then it comes from an evil place. It comes from a sinful heart because what you're desiring to do is deceive. What you're desiring to do is beguile the person that is in front of you. Jesus' point is that a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to be so true to his word that a simple yes or no has the same value as an oath. That's the point that he's making. Now, ultimately, brothers and sisters, consider for a second. Let's just take a step back from this and ask, okay, so what does that mean for us then? What does that mean for me? First of all, we have to consider what do we have in God? What do we have in God? Do we serve a God that has ever gone back on His Word? Not according to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 17-20. Listen to what Paul says here. It should appear on the screen behind me. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? There's a double again. At the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. See, Paul is being accused of, of going back on his word. He's told the church at Corinth that he's going to visit them, and then he was obviously prevented from actually going to the church. And so the church is accusing him of going back on his word, of doubling back. And he tells them, I can't go back on my word. I can't tell you a lot. I can't tell you yes on the one hand and then turn around and say no on the other hand and not have any intention of following through. How do you, how do you know this? Because the God that I proclaim is faithful. That's what Paul's doing. You see, he's tying his word to the God that he represents. And he's basically saying everything that I'm telling you would all fall through the cracks. It would all be worthless if what I was telling you is false because I'd be representing God in a false way. And he says this, For the Son of God... Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no. But in Him it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. This is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God. He says, I can't be unfaithful to the word that I, that I proclaimed to you or that I spoke to you or the thing that I told you because too much is at stake. The name of God himself is at stake. And he doesn't go back on his word. And if I lied to you, then I'd be testifying to a different God. Brothers and sisters, do we serve a God that goes back on his word? No, in fact, what we have in God is a God who promised to save us. Did he go back on his word? No, in fact... He sent His Son to the cross to be crucified on our behalf. He punished Him for our sin. He poured out His wrath on Him in judgment, judgment that we rightly deserved. He poured it out on Jesus and offered to us Christ's righteousness to be received by faith. And let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to this God, to this God who has promised to forgive you of your sins against Him. He's promised 
to give you eternal life in the age to come. These are promises that haven't yet been fulfilled, but we look back on the promises that God has already made to us, and we know that they're secure. We know that these, we trust that these promises are secure. He has promised to give you eternal life in the age to come. If you've never dedicated your life to following this God, come find me after the service is over. I'd love to introduce you to it. I understand that your life may be filled with broken promises of people telling you things and never fulfilling their end of the deal. Whether it be your spouse or parents or whomever, making promise after promise and not holding up their end to the deal. But the God that we proclaim is always true to his word. But listen, this is important for us as followers of Jesus as well. I want you to think about this for just a second. Our word represents the king that we serve. Whoever that king may be. It's either God who never lies or Satan who is the father of lies. But don't pigeonhole Jesus here. Don't think that he's only talking about promises that you make to somebody. Well, He's only talking about if I make a promise to someone, then I need to fulfill my end of the deal. Now, I'm afraid it's much bigger than that. He's digging even deeper than the words that you say all the way to the integrity with which you live. One of our biggest offenses in the church today is being fake. How's everything going? fine. It's not fine. You know it's not fine. But you feel it's more important to come in here and put on a face as if everything is okay when it's not. You're tired, you're struggling, you're exhausted, Sin easily besets you, but for some reason when you come into a church around brothers and sisters in your church family, you feel that it's better to assume a persona of what you think a Christian actually is than what a Christian actually is. Of being honest about the sin that easily besets them. About being honest about the the struggles that they're going through. In spite of the fact that you've got marital issues, parenting issues, financial issues. I mean, we're essentially playing our own game of catch me if you can. We just put on the, co- the costume and you find that as a co- the costume of a Christian, people naturally trust you. And when they say, is everything okay? And you say, yeah, everything's fine. They walk away going, yeah, that's the typical response that I get from a Christian. Everything is fine. But you see, Jesus' teaching here transcends the mere words that we say, all the way to the integrity with which we live our lives. What binds us to our integrity? The fact that we serve a God who knew all of your sin and forgave you. If every yes and every no has binding authority, then it should say to us that we should live our lives with complete honest and integrity in every area. Whether that's our business, whether that's our relationships with each other, whether that's our marriage, regardless of the avenue, it should speak to the integrity with which we should live our lives.
And I guarantee you, as we think about it this way, our sin becomes more apparent. How often am I open and honest with other people around me about what's really going on? The struggles that I'm dealing with. How often am I, am I that forthright? I'm not saying you have to spill the beans to everyone you come in contact with. Pass somebody in Walmart and they say, hey, how's it going? That's common in, in the South especially. Hey, how's it going? Oh, well, let me tell you. Okay, I really didn't want all that, all right? I'm not saying you have to spill the beans to everyone. But are you telling people that you love them? Telling people that you're for them? Telling people that you, that you want to be with them? Telling people that you like them and then turning around and gossiping about them behind their back? You slander people? Is what you present to that person what you truly believe about that person? It touches every area of our life. The question that we ultimately have to ask ourselves as believers, am I telling the truth with my life or am I living a lie? Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, how often we deceive. Lord, it's difficult as a sinful person even to know ourselves. Even to know our own heart. We can't do it. We are fully dependent on you, Lord, to shine a light on the dark corners of our heart. That we might identify those areas where we're less than authentic. Where we don't, where we're not governed by the ultimate, uh, by ultimate integrity. Where we're not true to our word. Where we're unfaithful even to the vows that we made to our spouse. We're requiring you, Lord, please identify those areas in our life. So that we may confess them and repent of them turn from them and pursue you wholeheartedly with integrity and with purity. In Jesus' name, amen.